Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? And I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm here with Sophia doing a deep dive. Hi guys. This week's deep dive is going to be on Etta James. I absolutely love her songs, but of course, the number one song is At Last. I swoon every single time that I listen to that as soon as the violins come on and then there's that luxurious sultry voice that commands your attention in such a just it's like aching and delightful and just beautiful yeah it's such a good song with everything comes together in perfect harmony and it's just a really perfect dance and love song very like slow waltz you know so nostalgic it's just a three minutes of bliss to get lost in you know yeah and it is listed as her number one song on most lists it's appeared in way too many tv shows to name but some of them are 2021's the little things the handmaid's tale Shameless, True Blood, Ugly Betty, Everwood, American Pie, Rain Man, and one of my absolute favorite shows is The Good Place. Mm -hmm. I just love that. (laughs) And it's also appeared three times on The Simpsons. So, and that's not, of course, her only song. I'd Rather Go Blind appeared in Suicide Squad. Stormy Weather appeared in Snowpiercer, as well as Orange is the New Black, and The Wallflower, which we're going to talk about a bit later on, appeared in Back to the Future. And she just has endured the test of time as an influential artist and a music pioneer who continues to, you know, seduce our ears and steal our hearts even today. Yeah, she's got a really good catalog of music and was very good at what she did. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So I am not a singer, as you know, mm-hmm. um, but that never stops me from hurting people's ears. <laughs> so <laughs> I did go on a couple of sites. I did some research on Etta James, which of course is why it's called a deep dive. And it's not like she was just randomly pulled out of the air. We were listening to some of her music I don't know, a couple of months back. And I wanted to know a little bit more about her. And so I started doing some research. And it was like, holy cow, this lady had, I suppose it's an amazing life, but it was incredibly tumultuous, incredibly painful. And it's just another one, like when we did the Hank Williams deep dive, where she was just constantly being taken advantage of and had to somehow rise to the top through just paramount hardships, just incredible stuff. I'm glad that there's a legacy. I'm glad that we get to listen to her music, that her music has stood the test of time. What an amazing voice. And, you know, at the time when a lot of this music came out, because she was black, her music was set aside. And so she didn't get the chart ratings that she deserved, simply because it was a black person singing this music. And, uh, you know, I guess it's a testament that times have changed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we all listen to it. And it's been in so much. And, you know, she lived long enough, she didn't pass away until 2012 to see a lot of that change take place. Yeah, Um, she was able to get the credit that she deserved for her music and hard life and all her devotion. 
and see it during her lifetime. Um, In some ways, you know, I think that if anybody's listening to us who who knows the Etta James story, there might be a little bit of, well, you know, she might have lived until 2012, but there were other mitigating factors that kept her from being completely aware. Perhaps. I don't know. Anyway, I mentioned that I can't sing, which is why I went on a website that is called Diva Devotee. James had what is called a contralto voice, C-O-N-T-R-A-L-T-O. And what Diva Devotee states is, quote, Etta James was an emotive, honest, and smart singer that could turn her voice to any number of genres. Her voice was dexterous enough to sing Molisma and had the power to hold notes, but her real strength lay in her ability to interpret the music she was singing, expertly varying her tone, timbre, and delivery accordingly. So that has a lot to say. And I think it's just kind of like, just there was yeah. just an ethereal quality about her sound. And what's interesting is that it seemed to rise really high above the hardships. You know, like when she sang, there was no problem in the world. Everything was right in the world. You know, her music made it seem that way. So she was born in the City of Angels, which is the perfect place for a musical angel to be born. (laughs) She was born Jamesetta Hawkins right here in L.A. in 1938. Her mother was Dorothy Hawkins. She was a 14-year-old high school student. And according to a lot of accounts, Dorothy Hawkins was a prostitute. But I'd like to underscore the fact that she really had very little chance of avoiding that profession. When her mother died. She moved from Nebraska to South Central Los Angeles to live with her sister Cosetta, who was 24. So she was 10 years older than Dorothy, and she worked as a madam. Yeah. And according to all of the accounts, Dorothy was vibrant, voluptuous, easily caught men's eyes. So it wasn't long before she went to work with Cosetta. And, um, Well, Sophie and I just drove through a really harsh, gritty part of Los Angeles yesterday. And it was, you know, it's probably one of the oldest places in Los Angeles. It's overcrowded and congested, traffic ridden, every kind of social ill, unfortunately, that you could think of is occurring there. In fact, when we were trying to get to the freeway, there was a huge line of traffic. It's one of those neighborhoods where you're going down the residential street and there's too many cars on the street already, narrow street, and traffic's just going through there, winding its way to the on-ramp of the freeway. So it's just, you know, very busy, very sooty, very gritty. And on several corners, there are girls Mm -hmm. and their little tiny shorts and their little tiny tank tops uh, with that sway back walk talking on the phone and they're just going up and down the block, shaking their butts and swinging their hair around and trying to make eye contact with the drivers as they go by. And they are really pretty young girls. And it is so heartbreaking to see that because this kind of life is going to beat them down. Yeah, but they might, they don't have very much choice in it and they shouldn't be doing it, but... But the resources aren't there. Yeah, they don't have the ability to be doing anything else. Or they do, but the money is not there for a minimum wage job. It's just not going to support them. And I don't think it's just a financial issue. I think it's like a super complicated issue because um, I'm assuming they have pimps. You know, we didn't get out of our car to talk to these girls. But there was an ad that said, what did it say? I don't know. You're the one that saw it. No, you saw it. You read it. Oh, there was. There was an, oh gosh, we passed this huge billboard on a bus bench and it had a girl with two black eyes that looked like she'd been crying tear stained face she looked tired scared and it said your pimp 
won't care, but we do. And it was the Children of the Night Foundation. So I had never seen that billboard before. But when you start seeing those kinds of billboards, and then you see the girls, you realize why those are there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, it's a super complicated situation. This is the life that Cosetta and Dorothy lived. And Dorothy got pregnant when she was 14. Mm-hmm. Etta never knew who her father was or even who he was for a long time. And I don't think she ever really knew who he was because her mom regularly would brush her off whenever she came in to ask. And one night he appeared on TV and he was known as Minnesota Fats, who was a famous pool player of the time. And, you know, it's really funny because he never won any tournaments or anything, but he was just a huge entertainer. He was on TV. He was at all of the pool tournaments. He was on the radio, whining and dining with the big wigs of that time period. And his real name was Rudolph Wanderone, I think. I'm probably butchering it because the first time I said Wonder Wan, and it's uh, <laughs> like Wan. Wonder Wall. Wonder Wall. It's W A N D E R O N E. I like Wander On. He so was that's Swiss. It. That's a Swiss last name. I'm not Vonda, exactly. Like Vanderon. Van. Vanderone. Vanderone. <laughs> that sounds more Vanderone. French. It's like French Italian. Yeah. Vanderone. I just thought of zero on uh, Holes, The Curse. Oh. <laughs> you know, what was their last name? He had an interesting last yeah. name that was something like that. Like it was... Um, oh, like I don't think it was like Italian-American. Was it Italian? I feel like it was oh, Turkish well, or something. You mean Zero or uh, Sh- Shia LaBeouf? Maybe character. it was Shia LaBeouf's character. I don't even know what his name is. Zeroni. Uh, no, yeah. that was Zero. No, Madame Zeroni. Oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't Zero that Zero? is her like great, great, great grandson. Yeah, yeah Zeroni. Wonderoni. Okay, that's W-A-N-D-E-R-O-N-E. His real name was Rudolph, but he went by Minnesota Fats. And Etta James actually met him in 1987. And according to her autobiography that she wrote in 1993, that's called Rage to Survive, the Etta James story. I just love that she wrote an autobiography Mm -hmm. and was able to tell her life story in her way. I'm going to have to read it. He neither confirmed nor denied his paternity. And he said that he just didn't recall what was going on in his life at the time of her conception. So he couldn't verify it. And so she was born in 1938. This is 1987. Yeah. So she was born in the Great Depression right before World War II. Yeah. So there was a lot going on in the world. And, you know, he was just a John to Dorothy. And who knows how many times he engaged in this kind of activity. And Dorothy never reached out to him to say that he had a child. So, you know, by the time that Etta James meets him and starts talking about this, he's like, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know if he remembered Dorothy or not. Probably not. Which is sad because she was 14. So like... I don't want to think about the implications of that, but, you know. It's, I mean, it's been a sad issue forever. Yeah. Since the beginning of time, basically. And um, it continues to be. Dorothy was sent to a reform school and a mechanic that was named Al Anderson was charged with statutory rape and the hospital listed him as the father. And in the meantime... While Dorothy's in this reform home, Cosetta and her husband James take Etta in. Now, there are a lot of James here because she was still named Jamesetta Hawkins at this time. And she's being taken care of by a man named James. And they ended up traveling across California for whatever reason. They ended up in Sacramento. And then they came back to South Central to reunite with Dorothy after she was released from the reform school. But of course, Dorothy didn't have any resources. So she continued to prostitute herself. And she was such an infrequent presence in Etta James life that Etta referred to her mother her entire life as the mysterious woman. Yeah, which is so sad. Like, your mom isn't there, but also she was so young that it's like, how can she really mother you, you know? And there was no father figure. Yeah. You know? And so this continued to happen to Etta throughout her childhood, really. 
is that she would be just handed over to family and friends, like, take care of her. And she was actually given at this time to an elderly couple, Lou and Jesse Rogers, to be cared for. They lived upstairs from the Hawken house in the same apartment complex. And Etta referred to Jesse as Sarge. Again, this is South Central. It's a very low income neighborhood. These are black families living in a time where wartime. <laughs> well, they're living when <laughs> wartime and also Jim Crow laws and all of, you know, all of those hardships, you know, that we are privileged, you know, when we talk about this white privilege was something that was going around a lot. It was like this hot phrase during 2020, especially in 2021. And I don't think that it's exclusive to whites. I think that the white population definitely has this privilege. I mean, there's no way to deny it. But I think it's a privilege that's been afforded to us that have not had to experience the hardships of this time period, the racism and the bigotry and the classism. So we're talking about families that um, when you start talking about things like generational trauma, Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about people who are not exactly highly educated because the opportunities were not there. It's not that they were not intelligent. It's that they didn't have the privilege of going to good schools. And then there's the symptoms of generational trauma that are brought forward. So she endured a lot of that. Jesse Rogers was not a nice person. He was an alcoholic. I didn't do enough research on him, but he was definitely not the best father figure. And like listening to this, you know that she was pretty much doomed from the start. But Etta James was a singing prodigy and it was perhaps the light that could have saved her from a really hard life. But again, generational trauma is so complex, entrenched, It's, you know, like a lot of times they'll say things like, you know, you can take the girl out of whatever, but you can never take the whatever out of the girl or the boy. And I think that even when you leave these situations, those memories and emotions and pathologies of going through that kind of traumatic event leaves within you is pretty permanent. And it's really hard to leave some of those thought patterns and perceptions behind. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're a child having to go through that, being raised by an absent mother and no father and just being sent from person to person makes you feel not loved. You don't have a secure attachment to anybody. You know, you're disenfranchised. Yeah, no one cares about you. And like when you're raised from a baby, you're like, okay, this is all I know. Like That's your normal. Yeah. That's your normal. So um, by the time that she (laughs) doesn't get better for poor Etta, by the time that she was five years old, she was taking vocal lessons from this guy named James Earl Hines. And he was the musical director at St. Paul Baptist Church in South Central. And one of his tools for helping Etta sing from her belly was to punch her in the chest when she was singing. Which is just child abuse. He punched this five-year-old in the chest so that the voice would come from her belly. Despite the abuse, she became a singing phenomenon at the church. So much so that celebrities would come to the services to listen to her. And they included Lana Turner, Orson Welles, Robert Mitchum. They just thought they were literally listening to an angel sing. And, you know, the thing is that again to others and this is what she was to people throughout a lot of her life uh not all of it but quite a bit of her life her angel voice was just something for others to to take advantage of so jesse rogers again whom she called sarge he would wake her up with beatings in the middle of the night he would be drunk and he would force her to sing for his poker buddies oh my god And she was never able to shake that trauma. And she found it really difficult to sing on demand throughout the entirety of her career. Well, yeah, that would like 
the threat of being beaten, like you're just you're not a person, your your voice. Yeah. Yeah. And so she ended up acting out in frustration. She got kicked out of a string of schools. She was pretty young still. I mean, elementary school, early middle school for fighting. She ended up joining a gang. She was put in juvenile detention for a while. And Lula, Sarge's wife, passed away. So Dorothy decided to move to San Francisco. And she started listening to like doo-wop music. And it inspired her to start a girl group that was called the Creolettes because they were all light-skinned black girls. And, um, you know, the number 14, for some reason, works itself into Etta James' story, which I think is really interesting. I want to talk to Jenny Ruiz of Burning Times Tarot about what the number 14 represents. But again, Dorothy got pregnant with Etta James when she was 14. Etta James started a girl group when she was 14. And they caught the eye of Johnny Otis, who was a musician, composer, record producer, band leader, talent scout. I mean, you name it, this guy did it. And when Etta James was 14 years old, her name officially changed from Jamesetta Hawkins to Etta James. And the group was renamed named from the Creolettes to the Peaches, which was also a nickname of Mm. Etta's. And so she drops out of school and starts touring. (laughs) And Otis produced and co-wrote her first hit, The Wallflower, which is also known as Roll With Me, Henry. But they had to change the title because they were worried about the censors due to its sexual connotations, you know, like Take Me to Bed, Henry. But it ended up hitting number one on the Hot Rhythm and Blues track charts in 1955, which allowed the Peaches to get an opening spot in Little Richard's national tour. That's cool. Yeah, the problem is, and again, you know, it's it's funny because Sophie and I were listening to Hank Williams' music and a song came on, I can't remember what it is, and I said, that's not his song. That is a Black artist's song. And then we started talking about appropriating and how white artists would take Black artists' music and... Elvis Presley? Uh-huh. And there were no consequences for it. Well, this happened to Etta James as well. While she was on tour with Little Richard, Roll With Me Henry was recorded by Georgia Gibbs. And Gibbs' notoriety comes from appropriating songs that originated with the Black rhythm and blues community and making them her own. So her version was exactly the same as Etta James, but it was called Dance With Me, Henry. And it went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. And Etta was infuriated by this because nobody was listening to her original. Yeah. Well, there was no way to know that she had done that at that time. Because there's no internet, no books that are like, oh, this song is actually this song. You know, it's like you would only know by picking up a record and listening to it and going, oh, my God, that song that's on the radio is actually not hers, but Etta James's. And it was a time when society was not picking up the black records. Yeah. The, you know, the majority of society was not picking up those black records. So it just wouldn't have been known. Mm-hmm. And um, she was she was hot about that. So while she's with Johnny Otis, she ends up meeting Big Jim Wynn, who is Otis's saxist. And Jim Wynn becomes her legal guardian because oh. she's still oh, under minor. 18. She's still a minor. I don't know what happened to Dorothy after Etta James went on the road. I I don't know. Again, I'll have to read that autobiography. But he was able to introduce her to more big players in the music industry who landed her gigs in black theaters. And she was also contracted with a label called Modern. And that's where she had her hit for Roll With Me, Henry. Eventually, she moved to Chicago. She bought out her contract with Modern for $3,000. And she signed on with Chess Records. Chess Records wasn't 100% sold on her ability to make hits 
hits, so they signed her on as a writer. But her first hit with Chess Records, All I Could Do Was Cry, was a song about watching the man that she loved get married to another woman and listening to the vows and all she could do was cry. Um, You you see how society molds us? Yeah. Um, She didn't get any financial gain from that, even though it became a hit until her next song, The Amazing At Last. And at the same time, right around that time, she became hooked on heroin. And she described in her autobiography that heroin was her drug of choice because, quote, it took her far away out of it. All the pain, thought and confusion melted under its lazy, hazy spell, and she felt unapproachable and mellow, end quote. It's just so sad that these incredibly talented artists, I mean, she was prodigious, a prodigious talent, have to deal with so many hardships. It's like everything is out there to keep them from succeeding. Yeah. Yeah, they just have to keep persevering even though everything is going thrown at them and that's why so many of them get into drugs and alcohol and you know the whole 27 club thing where there's so many artists that get to 27 and then die because of overdoses or suicides or anything like that it's a very big pattern in talented people Mm -hmm. of having Mm -hmm. really harsh lives yeah And my heart just sinks when I hear she got hooked on heroin. It's just like, oh, man, she, you know, like she was rising. She was she was rising. She was there with her rootless background and her newfound love for this highly addictive and often deadly opioid. She ended up in some really bad company. She ended up meeting and falling in love with this guy who she only referred to throughout her life as the pimp. He was rumored to have killed his previous girlfriend. And again, the number 14 makes its mark here. When he was 14 years old, he supposedly murdered a man. And Etta said that his history excited her. So it was really rough for her, you know. And here she is, this huge name. She's representing Black music. She's making crossover hits with At Last. And she is completely strung out on heroin and cocaine and alcohol. And she's got this dangerous relationship that she's in. Mm -hmm. And so she would show up at the recording studios unable to sing. She got arrested a couple of times. And... One time she got in a huge fight with her manager, John Lewis, and she said something like, you know, I hired your ass and I can get you fired. I don't remember exactly what the words were. And John Lewis did not take kindly to that. (laughs) And so he ended up planting heroin in her home and then calling the cops on her. Oh, my God. And she got arrested and she was really fortunate that she had really good attorneys who were able to get the case thrown out because they successfully argued that it was an illegal search and seizure. Mm. The cops just busted in the door. They had no went search in. warrant. No search warrant. It was just like, we're going to get Etta James and we're going to throw her in prison. So she's really lucky about that. But because she did this so many times, you know, it's just like such a hard situation where like you really feel for the artists but you also understand the studios need to have consistent high quality artists who are fully aware of all of their faculties and doing what they need to do so she gets arrested and her attorneys call the record company to bail her out and they were absolutely weary and frustrated with her and they refused to foot the bail and they said that leaving her in jail for a while was probably a lesson that could set her straight. Just a really, just such a tough situation because... Yeah, it's like they're not wrong. They're not, but I mean, like, they could have also... I mean, I I know where they they were coming from. They could have put her into a rehab. Yeah. So speaking of that, she eventually goes into rehab. Five days later, she ends up on her deathbed because one of the needles that she used, she contracted tetanus from that. And 
I didn't really know that tetanus did this. Like I knew, I you know, like you hear about locked jaw. Uh-huh. And you know that it's bad. Like you don't yeah. want to get tetanus. <laughs> yeah. Like go and get your tetanus shot. That is super important. But she was completely paralyzed. And then she started having these uncontrollable fits of seizures where her body was bending over backwards and then just racking her forward again. And just these horrible contortions that she was going through. They literally thought she was going to die. When she finally leaves the hospital and the rehab center, she is only the second person in the state of Illinois to have survived tetanus. That's how bad it was. Go get your tetanus shot. I mean, this stuff is crazy. So she returns to New York upon her release from all of this. She's sober. And who shows up? The guy that got her arrested, John Lewis, with a bunch of heroin. Oh. And rehooks her. Why? That's a good question. You know, <laughs> I have to say, I pulled up, if you go on to my webpage, you will see like 90 tabs are open. And so I was doing a bunch of research because there's so much information. You can't tell a person's life story yeah. in just an hour or two hours. So I didn't get into the specifics with John Lewis. But I have a feeling, an inkling from what I read that he liked her when she was hooked, that there was probably some sense of control, although also he was snorting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you would just think, though, that as a manager of a talent, you would want them to be the best at what they're doing and not be on stuff because it doesn't seem like it helped her. Oh, no, it totally didn't help her. And it doesn't seem like she was functional on it. But you have to understand, he was an addict and misery loves company. Like, you know, a lot of that is... Power, power dynamic. The power dynamic, the need to see somebody else fail to your level so that you're not as bad as you think that you are. And a lot of times, like what you said, as a manager, you want to see this, like, that looks great on paper. But in reality, how do you make that happen when we're such messy individuals ourselves? And so I just think it was like, this was such... She probably also would have fired him if he didn't do that. Yeah, for a while there, she said that she was working, which meant recording, Uh just to fund her habit. Mm. because she would go through withdrawals a lot of times. Like she either didn't have enough money or she couldn't find the drugs and the sickness that you get from the withdrawals were just horrible. So yeah. Okay. So she's dealing with all of this shit. Like her life is an enormous. I I mean, I want to say. How old was she at this point? Was she like an adult? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was probably in her late 20s or so, because she was 30 years old when she had her first son, or right about 30 years old. And I like I was about to say her whole life was a shit show. And it was in many ways, but also she had all of this talent that was allowing her to have a sense of hope. And she was making hits. She was still making hits this time. Like her album at last came out during this time period. She mm-hmm. like she had some big hits, but she was still with the pimp as she referred to him. And like he behaved like one, basically. And so he was constantly physically, emotionally just damaging to her. And he ends up beating her so severely that she ends up in the hospital. And this time she did press charges. It's unknown if he was ever convicted. He ends up leaving her life, thank God. Mm. But shortly afterwards, she finds out that she's pregnant with her first child, Donto. And she did have a second son, Sumeto, from another man. So Donto was born like in 1968, somewhere around then. So both of her sons grew up to be musicians. They played with her at various concerts later on when, of course, they were adults. But like during this time that she's dealing with all of this stuff, she continued to produce hits like Tell Mama, which charted at number 10 in 1967 for the R&B singles charts and number 21 in 1968 for the R&B albums charts. 
And that album includes one of my favorite Etta James songs, which is Fire. I mean, it's just such a great song. Yeah. You know, like it comes on and you are alive. It's a great workout song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So I, I guess one of the sort of saving graces is that she married a guy named Artis Mills in 1969, and they remained married right through her death in 2012. Mm-hmm. They didn't have children. Oh, you know, one of the things I forgot to mention is that while Dorothy was in reform school, she was forced to have her tubes tied. So she never had any other children. Um, Etta James had two children and then she married Artis Mills. And, and that just reminded me of that. Which just, you know, the, the whole being forced to have your tubes tied. It happened a lot to marginalized communities mm-hmm. because people don't want them having kids. It's like um, forced castration. Is that the right word? Well, castration would be, be the male. male counterpart. But yeah, it was forced sterilization, I think is the right word. And it just reminds me of, remember when we went into the Museum of Death? Correction. It is called Psychiatry and Industry of Death Museum. And it is located inside of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights Building in Hollywood. So there's this museum Mm -hmm. that is run by the Church of Scientology in Los Angeles, and everybody needs to go to it. You will not be proselytized to by the Church of Science community. And in fact, a lot of psychology professors and instructors will send their students there because it's got some really dark but historically accurate And some that you have to take with a grain of salt, for sure. But it does have some historically accurate documentation of what would happen in the name of mental health going way back. I think the first thing that we saw when we went in there, it's been a while, but we went in there and there was a chair that had shackles. You know, your arms would be shackled to the armrests and your legs would be shackled to the bottom, of course. You know, there was a strap that went across the chest, a strap that went around the neck and you were forced to stare at a wall. Mm-hmm. And if you screamed and stuff, then they would gag you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tor- it's torture devices, essentially. Essentially. There was just like so much crazy shit like that. But there were two things that this forced sterilization reminds me of that was going on back then. Um, Well, really three things. So one of them was that forced sterilization was one of the things that people that were deemed to be mentally inferior, ill, whatever it was, had to undergo. Yeah. Many times against their will. And another thing was the frontal lobotomy this actually happened it's so nuts when you go and you learn about this stuff you're like what the the hell america the lobotomy being nobel prize in science like the lobotomy it's crazy (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) like one flew over the cuckoo's nest um and so then the third thing i'm thinking of ice baths and forced to stay in there and in these ridiculously cold, horrible conditions. It's not what, you know, I know that now like the Wim Hof method and <laughs> all of that shit, everybody's yeah. like, plunge me into the ice. Let me see how long, you know, all these challenges of how long can you stay submerged in freezing temperatures. Yeah. You're going in willingly. Like somebody has sat down and explained to you all of the benefits of this. Back then it was like you were in a dark room getting plunged into ice, stripped down against your will type of thing. And so anyway, that um, that reminded me of that museum. But like I said, if you go, it's also free. You don't have to give money to the Scientologists. Nope. <laughs> you do not have to give money to the Scientologists. They also have free parking there. And then, you know, you can go off and walk down the Hollywood Walk of Fame and find Etta James has a star there at 7080 Hollywood Boulevard. Go find her star. Uh, Anyway, let's get back to Etta James. I knew we were going to go on a tangent at least Mm -hmm. once. 
So she did eventually marry Artis Mills in 1969, and she stayed married with him for the duration of her life. She passed away in 2012. The thing is that in the 60s and 70s, and even into the 80s, she spent a lot of that time in and out of rehab centers and getting arrested, not just for possession, but for things like writing bad checks, which again, just makes your heart sink like such a talent didn't have the money Mm -hmm. to, you know, be able to live. I don't know what she was writing the bad checks for, you know, maybe she shouldn't have been buying the Gucci purse. Mm -hmm. But also maybe it was for her groceries. I have no idea. It's just really super sad. And there was one point where this is really amazing to me and just a testament of how much artists Mills loved her is that sometime in the early 70s, they both got arrested for possession of heroin and he took full responsibility for it so that she wouldn't have to serve prison time. He spent 10 years in prison oh my God. for that. He just said, it's, it's all me. Ed, it didn't have anything to do with it. He was released in 1981. In 2010, she ended up hospitalized for a super bad MRSA infection. And MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus infection, which is basically a strain of bacteria that doesn't respond to antibiotics and could be really deadly. At that time, her son Donato also said that she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's two years prior to that. So Mm. 2008, which is why I said earlier on that she had some awareness, but I don't know that she had awareness all the way through the time that she passed away. I don't know how bad the Alzheimer's was. A year later, so this is 2011, she was diagnosed with leukemia and she ended up dying At the beginning of 2012, January 20th is when she passed away. And she was five days short of hitting her 74th birthday. And at her funeral, Stevie Wonder, Christina Aguilera gave musical tributes. And like I said, she is buried at Inglewood Park Cemetery. And her awards include six Grammys and inductions into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, again, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She has like a total of 30 awards and recognitions. It's really an amazing, amazing life. And so like I said yesterday, Sophia and I went to visit Etta James grave. She's buried in a marble mausoleum. They're outdoor mausoleums. They do have indoor mausoleums. They have some like cemeteries are some of my favorite places because they have some amazing graves there. They were meant for people to hang out at the first person who made cemeteries like that. I went to the, there's one in New York, in Brooklyn, that me and my cousin went to, and it was, like, one of the first cemeteries that were built with the really big green pastures and the nice, the grave markers, and it was, like, cemeteries were meant to be a place for families to hang out with, like a, like a park-type environment, and I feel like the Inglewood Park Cemetery, it, it's like that, it's like a place where it's very pretty I would walk around there yeah you're right about that I wish Brooke was here I wish Brooke Applegate was here because she worked for a Victorian museum for a really long time and one of her favorite aspects of Victorian culture was their death rituals and there's actually I was just thinking about this woman who I think is from that time period Florence Irene Ford from Natchez, Mississippi, she was 10 years old, uh, was really petrified of storms. And so when her grave was built, the mom had a staircase built that would go down into the ground to her daughter's grave so that whenever there was a storm, she could go and sit beside her daughter, you know. And that's why you see a lot of the death portraits 
the mm-hmm. death photography that had to do that was the Victorians. But I wonder if it was if that cemetery that you were talking about in Brooklyn was built like during that time. I think it was because the main entrance of it had that the Victorian, the very like pointy fence, wrought iron, ornate. It well, it was like a building. Like, oh, they're like front building. That oh, you, like drive through. Mm-hmm. And then they also had underground like catacomb type areas yeah that's interesting i mean cemeteries are just interesting period you know when i was in austria specifically i'd never seen such gorgeous cemeteries in my entire life the program that i was on at the time was a study abroad program and it was an honors history as well as an honors music classes that we were taking. So I got to study at the University of Vienna. (laughs) And I got to see Sigmund Freud's home and all of that sort of thing. But anyway, because it was a history study abroad program when we were at the cemeteries, we found out that those graves are rented for 25 years at a time, which sounds crazy over here, you know, but it's such an old community. It is so highly populated and the space for cemeteries is kind of at a premium. Well, yeah, they don't, they're also not tearing down whole communities to flatten it to make a cemetery like we would. So, right. And I have two thoughts on that really, but um, I'll finish this one, (laughs) which is that they also did studies which is how they came up with this 25 year expiration is that people when they pass away really are only visited for a very short time. And they felt that 25 years was the high end of visiting family and friends because Mm -hmm. then they either move away, they start dying away, (laughs) right? You know, eventually you'll die after your family dies. Yeah, they start occupying the spots on either side of you. And the family does have the option to lease it again for another 25 years. I shouldn't use the term rent, but really it's a lease. And let me tell you, because of this, they come in and they make these graves immaculate. They have little miniature gardens on them with little solar lights that light up at night and fairies and just some of the most creative, beautiful, artistic visions that Mm -hmm. you could imagine. They're really, really beautiful. And, you know, if your family decides that they're not going to lease it for another 25 years or nobody's come around to see you for a while (laughs) then the the body is exhumed the bones are exhumed they're cleaned up they're wrapped up there's an artist there that and i don't know if this is every single cemetery but definitely this one in salzburg they paint your name really beautifully on the skull decorate it with some things put your birth date your death date And then you end up in a bone museum. Which is so cool. Which is kind of cool. You know, people paid uh, whatever it was, a couple of shillings to go in and take a look and kind of learn a little bit about death, get in touch with the macabre side of things. You know, again, that Victorian fascination with death, which continues on even today. And then somebody else gets to occupy that space and have loved ones come and care for it and spend time with them. So yeah, cemeteries are really a trip. And the second thing that I wanted to say about that is, or, you know, when you were saying like we would completely flatten an area and turn it into a cemetery is... I think you and I were hiking right above a cemetery one day and I looked down, it was like this busy road and it's suburbanish mm-hmm. enough, you know, it's not like we're in the heart of LA or anything where we were hiking at. And I looked down and beyond the cemetery was all of the smoke stacks from the refineries, like refineries stretching out forever, the port of LA you know, and all of its industrial mechanisms and stuff, the ships coming in, the bazillion containers, the cranes, the 110 freeway full of traffic. And this was the one green patch and it was sprawling 
and cemeteries offer a place for wildlife to rest, especially like migrating birds. They usually have a pond or a lake. They have lots of trees, you know, lots of greenery. And I know that people go in and, and, you know, they visit. And so there's cars and all of that. But it's a very quiet area. Yeah. But that also could have been a forest and not houses. And then they cut down a bunch of trees and flattened. It's kind of, it's, it's the same thing as like golf courses where... I mean, it's not exactly the same as a golf course, but it's similar where it's like they could have just put buildings there, but they also put greenery there. I don't know. I think it's the fact of like modern life. Well, yeah, but if I would totally rather have a cemetery than a high capacity residential six story building with, you know, 3000 units in it. But I'd also rather have a forest than a cemetery. Yes. I mean, if you're looking at it in categories like what's best, what's worst and all of that. Yeah, of course, you'd rather have a forest. But the forests do tend to get chopped down or the green areas tend. We don't care about them. Because the developers come in and, you know, developer drives through and says, hey, I want to put a strip mall in there. And there goes all the greenery. (laughs) Whereas that can't happen because there are loved ones that are buried among this greenery. They they do find like old burial grounds while they're trying to do construction and then they... Yes, because we were jerks and took it away from the Native Americans and didn't really care. Don't you think about that it'll eventually happen to the no because i think now. that a lot of those native american burial grounds were destroyed during a time when the missions were being built you know junipero sarah when he was enslaving and raping and killing people in the name of god he didn't care you know i mean not him but the church through him did not care and there are laws and like we have advanced beyond that we have much more awareness and things aren't perfect things are definitely not perfect but i don't think that any of the cemeteries that are near us are going to be covered up and have buildings built on top of them because you know like stuff stops you cannot build a building until whatever population it is remains that they find until living people of that population come and take a look at it and scientists and you know everything is Mm -hmm. has to be dealt with very respectfully with great care and homage to the people that had been there and you know this terrible thing that they've been like covered up and mistreated all of that has to be taken care of before and maybe even if You never know. You might not even be able to build on that site once you find a burial ground underneath it. So I don't think that there is going to be a rush to cover up cemeteries. Yeah. You know, because it just stops everything. You know, like it's so interesting when we were in Korea. You walk down the streets and it doesn't matter what street you're on. Like when we walk through the hospital, there's even like this whole entire archaeological site. They find something and they're like, this is the remains of either, you know, they find part of a building or they find remains of a royal member of one of their dynasties from the past. And all of a sudden there's like a monument a monument that's built right there. There's glass boxes put over the area so you can look down and see whatever it is that's poking up through the soil. There's information plaques that go all around it. We were in in Sandong and there is this triangle in the middle of literally the busiest intersection they have ever seen in your entire life. I think there's like eight passageways that traffic goes and right in the middle is something that they found from like... 3,000 years ago. Yeah. And there's actual guards that stand guard. Like they send the guards to stand in the middle of this intersection. What was that? It was like the original city wall, I think. It was preserved or something like that. But yeah, it was like the original wall, original city wall for Seoul. And yeah, it was like 50 feet wide or something, like in the middle of an intersection. Yeah. And they had three guards on each side Mm -hmm. guarding this and this beautiful tiger inscription on the ceiling of this tunnel so you know things are built around these things people care about history and i think that people still care about preserving and protecting ancestors you know 
Yeah. But it's just, like, in America, we always bulldoze buildings, so they never even get enough history to keep them around. Or we'll be like, oh, put a Walmart there, you know? And you're like, cool. Like, in the middle of this... so jaded. Well, no, I know, but it's, like, the reality of, like, what we're living in, and it, it sucks to see, like... I don't think it's going to happen to cemeteries, well, though. Okay, I agree with I, some of what you're saying. I, I'm my not that concerned not about gonna... cemeteries. No. I'm saying maybe it could happen in, like, 200 years. Like, not like tomorrow we would build a 16-story <laughs> skyscraper on... I don't know. I think it's because I saw this guy did this mosaic on this building. It took him, like, nine years to make. He died. He did, like, all these really nice mosaics. And some company bought this building. And at first, they were going to put rental properties on top of it but then like it was too tall and so now they have like a week to take off all of these like unique tiles because they're gonna demolish the building so that they can build rental properties on top of it and it's just like stuff like that like makes me mad not saying cemeteries are gonna do that but well yeah i mean it is there's there's a lot of injustices that go on but at the same time there's things that you know really that are sacred you know there's just things that really are still sacred and and again it's one of those things where like i always say you know the the bad things the awful things that happen in the world in life that we hear about that happen to us that happen to our friends whatever those are the things that impact us the most because they're so big but there's glitter falling all the time And I know that's a little bit like rose colored glasses or whatever, but there is. And the amazing thing is that we're in a flood of it constantly and it's really tiny like that glitter and it shines. And those, you know, they're they're so little that we don't really pay attention to them. And I think that, um, yeah, you know, there is bad crap out there and there's buildings that are going to get torn down and there's historical stuff that's going to get torn down but then you have something like the will turn theater um and i'm going to move beyond cemeteries but you know you have something like the will turn theater which was run down falling apart had four feet of whatever of water in the ground floor all of this art deco gloriousness of it had been destroyed and there was a whole group of activists who came in and they've chained themselves around that building (laughs) and were like no the bulldozers had showed up the wrecking ball was going in and somehow they managed to save it and how many concerts have we gone to there you know so there's people who care about this historical stuff and it's always like you do have to balance those things because i think we could get stuck so much in that miasma or whatever you want to call it of just that jadedness of oh well look at what happened here and look at what happened there and look at what happened and and then you beat yourself down because you think you're never going to be able to win and then it's like well, hold on. Let's look at what happened to the Will Turn Theater, you know? I mean, like yeah. the Million Dollar Theater, all those amazing theater houses that you see in downtown Los Angeles that are still standing because people cared. And I think mm-hmm. that things do happen and they move at paces that are really fast, you know, too fast for them to be stopped or you can't get the big enough group to make a difference or whatever, that's always going to happen. But then there are going to be the times where there's plenty enough of people that are going to come in and go, no, we're not going to put up with this. Like, this stops right here. And I just think that it's such a crazy story to me that all of these construction companies and workers and like all of the contracts had been signed and like it was happening that day. And this group of people was able to go, no, it is not ever happening. Mm-hmm. And they were able to rebuild it. It's just like, whoa, you know, it's like one of those Cinderella stories. But I think those Cinderella stories do happen quite a bit. But, you know, again, they're not getting the attention of the big, terrible stuff. But I don't think cemeteries are going anywhere. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? No, not really. I don't really have anything. No. We're just going to belt out at last at the top of our lungs (laughs) the next time we hear it on one of our playlists. Yeah, listen to Etta James's uh, whole Compe- discography. Compendium discography, that's a good word. I don't know. I mean, we watched something. Bodies. But I forget that time travel stuff bothers me so much because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> 
It's a time travel. It, it's good. There are three characters that I really liked. Everyone else was okay. It was well shot, though. It was well shot, well edited. Just the story of it and the way it ended bothered me. So Bodies is on Netflix, and it is, as you can tell, a time travel <laughs> series. And it is about a body that appears in three different time periods. And so eventually you get into the time travel story and and what happens and how all Mm -hmm. of the characters in each one of these places and time periods are connected to one another. So that was, yeah. (laughs) It, It was interesting enough to watch all the way through, but I did need to stop myself from thinking too critically about it. Yeah, no, it wasn't a bad show. No. Um, and then we are currently watching The Killer. We have 40 minutes left of that. That is, if you like Fight Club, American Psycho, and did we mention one more? Probably. It's very slow, though. It's slower well, moving um, about clearly a killer, <laughs> the killer. But I'm noticing that the writers or the director pulled in elements from these other films that I just mentioned. So I don't know what the end of it is like, but that's what's on the tube for us right now. Yeah. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Hosier. It was so good at the Hollywood Bowl. He has such a good voice and he's going to continue his tour in Europe and then he's coming back to do a North American tour again in 2024. Ooh. So nice. Listen to his new album. It's very good. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm very jealous. Uh, you also saw Arctic Monkeys. And I saw Arctic Monkeys. I am really upset about that because Arctic Monkeys are one of my favorite groups. It was so good. I really like the forum. I feel like the forum is a very good place for bands who are very like theatrical. And it's a very good place to go to if you want to be pretty close to a band. I feel like the Hollywood Bowl is more for like sound because sometimes you do sit pretty far away from the stage and it's a bit difficult to see but I feel like the forum is very good place to see a really good band and almost every seat is good yeah almost every seat is good they even have like a secondary stage sometimes or they have like extended out onto the floor like oh yeah when we went to see Mana they had that second stage yeah and then La Residencia Los Angeles. We saw Thirty Seconds to Mars. Thirty Seconds to Mars commanded the which, stage. Jared Leto is I, like just amazing. <laughs> yeah, he not a great person. Do you know, he's not. But do you know Jared Leto just became the first person to yeah. legally climb the Empire State Building? <laughs> Does uh, that make He's you such sick? a narcissist that I just it fuel like it fuels my rage. <laughs> but. I will say that that concert was like one of the best concerts I'd ever gone to because it was so like absurd. Like he came down in a box. He came down in a box and the box lifted up and he was on the stage. Like it was, it was crazy. He was like a Sufi on there. And I also saw the Taylor Swift movie concert. So good. Like she is so amazing. She did like her Eras tour. She is such a good dancer and a good performer. And she has so much music that is just like amazing. But yeah, Arctic Monkeys was so good. So Sophie's got this great (laughs) social life going. Uh, We just went to downtown Los Angeles last weekend, got to go for my birthday. I did have a birthday. I think I mentioned that before, but apparently it is continued. The party continues. Um, not that I'm making it birthday month. Now, I, you know what? I really dislike birthday dislike the idea of a birthday month. I think it's really nice that, you know, when a friend or a family or whatever is like, let me take you out to your birthday. And of course, you can't go out to 13 dinners on your birthday. <laughs> so you, they do get spread out. But um, the whole I feel idea... like you get the week before your birthday and the week after your birthday. You get like 15 days. You get like two weeks. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> No, that seems like enough time. No, No? I just I just think it's absurd. But (laughs) we did go to downtown Los Angeles. Um, I am not having a birthday month. Uh, Did not choreograph it. Contrary to popular belief. Contrary to Sophia's belief. (laughs) 
but uh, we went to downtown Los Angeles, went to the Central Library. I have posted on social media about that as well as Engine Company 28. And I highly recommend, again, talking about Art Deco opulence and amazingness that is here in Los Angeles is at Central Library. I don't think enough people go there. And it's very pretty. One of the big tips is that if you park underground and get your ticket validated, it is only a dollar to park there. And with parking being at a premium in downtown Los Angeles and being like outrageously expensive in some places, it's it's such a gift. The building I think was built like in 1938. It is an Art Deco gem with Egyptian portion of the library burnt down. At first, there was some hesitation and pushback about rebuilding, and then it ended up getting rebuilt. There's a whole wing, which is the uh, Tom Bradley atrium wing that was put in there. It's just really airy. 1986, I think, is when it was put in, and it's got these amazing chandeliers, just a lot of sculptures and beautiful grounds and just spectacular, as you can tell. I can't quit talking about it. And then Engine Company number 28 is a restaurant housed inside of a historic Engine Company fire station. Mm -hmm. Amazing food, amazing service. Everything was just really good. Yesterday, we went to Manhattan Beach. For your birthday. (laughs) Again, for my birthday. Well, I mean, it wasn't really, I, I guess, I guess that was for part of it. It was a it birthday was, lunch. It was a birthday lunch. And we ate at the Kettle, which is always a great place. They're it's, open from 5 a.m. till 12 a.m. Yeah. Every day. And they have like 12 pages of menu. So yeah. whatever you want. It's now, always I mean, good. it's not really 12 pages, but. But it kind of is. <laughs> it kind, <laughs> it kind of, of is. is. It feels like it. Whatever you want. If, you know, if you are hungry at 5 o'clock good, in the morning or breakfast. at 11 p.m., go there and you're over by the beach oh disney Okay, so that was a cruise ship leaving. I don't know if you picked it up. It's not the Disney cruise ship. It's a princess. No, that is the love boat theme. And the Um, horns sound like they need to be tuned. That sounded terrible. (laughs) I'm like, you guys need to take the water out of them. So anyway, uh, we're just rambling here at the end. I hope that was a really interesting story about Etta James. We're going to do deep dives every once in a while. And I hope you enjoy them. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye. Please check the show notes for selected links and also keep sending in your questions and comments. I read all of them. If you have a story to share, please drop me a line. I'd love to hear it because the world needs more amazing stories. Please also take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help me this podcast closer to the top of searches. to sharing more upcoming in the company of friends talks with you so be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at weekly trail podcast that's t-h-e-q-u-a-i-n-t-r-e-double-l-e podcast i am still annan the queen trail and until next time i wish you passion adventure knowledge elegance and